quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, So There I Was. This is episode number 88, Smoke in the Tube. Not a good place to be. <laughs> Our special oh. guest, Butch Rutt, author of High School Dropout Stories of a Navy Pilot. And boy, does he have some stories. He does indeed. So, well, Happy New Year, everybody. Show 88, the first show released in 2024. This is, let's see, by the date this releases will be the 4th, as I recall, the 4th of January. So that Sounds about right. Yeah, welcome back from our little Christmas hiatus. Sponsor this week includes HelloFresh. Get a free breakfast item for life with your subscription at HelloFresh.com. Slash So there I was free, and we'll talk more about that during the show. <clears throat> Great book this week, and there's another book we need to mention, Fig. We, we've been in touch with uh, First Sergeant John Crouch, United States Marine Corps retired, and he put together a book called The Pressure Cooker, Forging Naval Officers Through Marine Leadership. He, a contemporary of Gunny Go, put together... Dozens, nay, hundreds of stories from AOCS over the years. Oh, are they fun? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So go check that out on Amazon. The Pressure Cooker, Forging Naval Officers Through Marine Leadership. Also this week, I got a photo from... Way cool. Yeah, this is way amazing. Cool. A guy named Jeff Cross, with a K, sent me a photo from VMF 214. Now, VMA 214, but... Back then, in 1943, it was VMF 214, and they were fighting in the Marshall Islands. Showed me a picture, sent me a picture with signed by Captain Ed Olander, who had five zero kills, Lieutenant Colonel John Bolt with six zero kills, and Lieutenant Colonel Bob McClurg, who at the time had seven zero kills. So, not 70, not seven zero, seven zeros, Japanese zeros. So these these guys were aces, and in this photo, they're they're holding baseball bats. The aces in the photo are holding baseball bats. So I'm going to put a, a screenshot of this photo up on so there I was us with cool. the history behind it, and including a link to another gentleman who put a huge history together of VMA 214. And it shows a similar photo taken that same day with the entire squadron standing up on the wings of that airplane and everything. Really cool. So look for that. So there I was dot us, and uh, it will be basically a blog entry as opposed to a as opposed to an episode, a live episode of our show. So. Hey, just another small detail: they they were all wearing baseball hats, right, right, right. And but, so the St. Louis Browns sent them a baseball hat for every uh, every, every, yeah, for every victory. So, you know, at the time, oh, hell, they had, every one of them had a hat on. <laughs> they were they were whipping ass. That was absolutely awesome. And so, and for those who may not remember, VMA, VMF 214 was the Black Sheep Squadron slash Pappy Boynton Squadron. And we're going to talk more about Pappy Boynton here in just a minute by, by happenstance, right? Yeah. And by the way, he's in that picture. I don't know if you noticed it or not. You know, I didn't. Oh, oh yeah. son of a gun. I need oh. to go back and look at it. Okay, he, he's not one of the it. signers, but he's standing right there in the picture. You know, just that thick fig. I missed it. <laughs> and I'm going to have to highlight that. I'll put two. I'll put a screenshot of it up there, and I'll do another one, and I'll highlight uh, Greg Boynton, a.k.a. Pappy. 
That's pretty so, awesome. There I was. Nice. We have a new Patreon pilot, Ray Glanville. Thank you very much, sir, for stepping up and sharing your hard-earned cash with with us and helping keep the show going. So, Yeah, thank you, Ray. And, yeah. So if you can't send us money, you can share the show and or write us a review. Yeah, share the show. Hopefully a nicer one than this one. <laughs> but, hey. hey, look, I've got to read it. <clears throat> we got a three-star review, Fig. Ow. That's that was right. my favorite hey, ringing. It's better than one. It's, it's better, better than, than one. one. And, it, and, and in fairness, this person wrote a, took the time to write yeah. some constructive criticism. So we got no choice but to at least take it in, take it under advisement. And he says, good guests and good entertainment from the guests, but only as long as repeat and fig don't regularly interrupt the guests or talk over each other. Ow. Okay. Be much easier to listen if Reaping and Fig did not chime in with their peanut gallery bantering comments while the guest is right in the middle of telling a unique story or answering a question. I feel bad for the guest when they are in the middle of a story of a mission over Afghanistan or a difficult flight, com flight coming back to land on the carrier at night and Repeat and Fig derail the vibe in a condescending way by mansplaining what on the boulevard or trick-or-treat means. So, Fig, mansplaining means that when you're trying to... Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, listen, uh, I, I, appreciate the, I appreciate the feedback. We have a significant number of listeners that are not aviation professionals. Right. And there is... We've had previous recommendations that we need to explain what terms and acronyms that we all throw around and know what they mean. We need to explain these right. things. So that's, I think that's kind of where, where that's, that's where it comes from. from. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you this. I think you're much better at it than me. That you, you sit there and actually write down terms and then circle back. I tend to interrupt more often and go, Hey, Hey, wait, what? Yeah. Or uh, if I can sneak it in, I'll, state what you know what a par is right after they said it anyway look we're, we're going to take that under advisement that's fair criticism and and we'll try to be better about not interrupting someone who's in the middle of the story where they almost died yeah no, there no they were nobody likes that right yeah so but this week's show smoke in the tube speaking of stories where someone almost died yeah that's uh well listen i don't want you know i don't want to ruin the story but you know, that's, that's something that all, all of us professional flyers are, I, I'm personally, that's my biggest fear. That's my really only fear is a right. fire inside the tube. You know, every, everything else you got, you can wind the clock and, and take your time. And, you know, yeah. if the engine's on fire, eventually it'll just fall off and that's okay. Right. But inside yeah. the tube, that's holy, that's completely yeah. different. And then when you're a thousand miles from the nearest runway. Yeah, over the water. Then it's worse. <laughs> yeah, over the water. And yeah. I think it was at night. Yeah, in the North Pacific, you know, where it's chilly. Yeah, this is, <laughs> yeah, it was it was yeah. a horrifying story. Yeah, absolutely. So, but this from our guest, Butch Rutt, again, author of High School Dropout, Stories of a Navy Pilot. He talks about his early days. He's actually correspondent and friend, it, friends, including getting a piece written on his book by none other than Jungle Jim Ross. That's pretty damn awesome. It's it's a small world, right? I mean, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, and so it also as, it also speaks to the character of Jungle. It, absolutely, 
And But as a kid, he went and saw the Blue Angels at the uh, Colorado Air Show every year and started corresponding with Jungle, and Jungle corresponded back, and they remained friends through the years, and, and he wound up writing a cover piece on the cover of his book. That's pretty awesome. But is isn't the only person he corresponded with. Well, you know, it's a great story. I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it, but he, he may, no, he did contact somebody via phone that is a historical figure and actually got him on the phone and had a, like a 45 minute conversation off the charts. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I mean, it's like, damn, why didn't I think of that? I know his, (laughs) his name, this individual we're talking about, his name might've rhymed with Pappy Boyington. I don't know. Might've. Yeah. So (laughs) fun stuff. Yeah, and that's a fun story how he how he did get a hold of him. But yeah, so all kinds of other good stuff though. He worked for Customs and Border Patrol. He worked for, with bail bondsmen. A colorful and varied and storied career. I I think we oh, should yeah. probably get out of the way and hear about smoking the two. Let's get out of the story. way. Let's do it. About crossing the pond. Here comes Butch at night in the world's smallest cockpit. On the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Well, there I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly... So there I was. I was a P-3 patrol plane commander. We were in the North Pacific, about a thousand miles south of Shimia, on an anti-submarine warfare mission, about three o'clock in the morning. And we were down low, prosecuting the Russian sub, and we had smoke in the tube. So when that happens, you activate the fire drill, and every crewman in the back has duties items to check and they couldn't find what was burning. They couldn't find what was burning. The smoke was getting thick. And at that time I had a couple of options running through my head. None of them were really good. One was to climb and depressurize the cabin, which would have induced oxygen in, which could make the fire worse. The other option was to ditch the airplane in the North Pacific. But Wintertime, North Pacific, you're looking at 20, 30-foot swells, 70-knot winds. The last time it was done was in, I think, 1978, a P-3 ditched. And the rumor back then was all the married crew members survived and all the single guys died. And I didn't have any reason not to believe that. So at the time, they couldn't find the source, couldn't find the source. Smoke's getting thick. And I remember reaching up under the glare shield for the ditching checklist thinking son of a bitch. I wish I was married. And at that time (laughs) they found the source. It was an overheated hydraulic pump, pulled the breakers. We climbed up, did the smoke evacuation checklist and we headed back to ADAC, Alaska. And we made that is how all great aviation tales (laughs) begin. (laughs) A thousand miles from nowhere. (laughs) What the hell? Let me follow that up with years later, there was a book written it's called ADAC, The Rescue of Fox, Alpha Foxtrot 586 by a guy named Andy Jompler, who was the base CEO at Moffitt. And the P3, the ditch, was attached to a squadron at Moffitt. They were operating out of ADAC, Alaska. And 
He wrote a book. It's an awesome book. Come to find out, not all the married guys survived, and not all the single guys died. So, well, there you so have. That was a vicious so. rumor. Yeah, that was a vicious rumor at the time. Yeah. But, yeah. All right. Well, greetings, everybody. Repeat here, coming to you from Seoul, Korea today. So, greetings, and got my co-host Fig. Where are you sitting today? Yes, sir. I'm in Kearney, Missouri. Just outside Kansas City. It's Kansas City Chiefs game day. They're hosting the Buffalo Bills here in a couple hours. Yeah. But more importantly, I want to welcome our guest, Butch. And that's how you start a story right there. My palms are sweating a little bit. You said low altitude. How low? We were probably, if I remember, you know, that was a couple of weeks ago. We were probably less than a thousand feet. Well, that'll get your attention. At three o'clock in the morning, out over the water, no lights. That's crazy shit. So you weren't nowhere, but you could see it from there, huh? (laughs) We were were right next door to it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, because there's all that help just hanging around out there a thousand miles out in the North Pacific, ready to help you guys out when things go to crap, right? Yeah, you know, and I was on my third deployment. We did six-month deployments. I did two to Japan. And then this was my last one. We were stationed in ADAC which is a little island on the Aleutian chain that connects, used to connect Alaska and Russia. Right. It's like halfway out there. It separates, the Aleutian chain separates the North Pacific from the Bering Sea. And it was, it was a not fun environment to be in, but that's treacherous uh, environment. Mm -hmm. Varsity every day is varsity. (laughs) Exactly. But well, how let's let's back up though a little bit because you didn't start off life as a P three pilot. In fact, I would say among all our guests, you're you're one of the more circuitous routes to get what yourself the into. Hell, uh, was that term you just used? <laughs> that's, a that's your word. that's your fifty cent word of the day, folks. Circuitous. circuitous? Go look it up. We'll put I it in the glossary. I don't know what the hell that means. Repeat. <laughs> I am going to have to look that up. That's a lot of bubbles from the radio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Wow. Especially for someone, say, who uh, might have, I don't know, dropped out of high school. Get us back to how you got there. How yeah, you got here from that, there. This, uh, this is a good story. Let's hear yeah. this. One. I did. My parents got divorced when I was about eight, eight or ten. And okay. I had three sisters. My mom was a stay-at-home housewife. So when my dad left, she worked three jobs, seven days a week, supporting four kids. We moved out of the house and moved into a two-bedroom apartment. And at the time, since I was the only boy, I got my own bedroom. And then as soon as I turned 16, I quit high school, moved out so my mom could have her own room. And back then, my passion was cars. I always wanted to own a gas station back then. So I got a job at a a gas station, worked a couple different gas stations for a few years, got a job at a Datsun dealership. Datsun, that's pre-Nissan. That's pre-Nissan, yeah, man. that's a B210, the 510. 240Z. Yeah. Wow, that was a pretty hot car back then, man. Yeah, so I worked at a dealership for a while. Started taking flying lessons again. Early when I was a little bitty kid, my dad got me some intro flights at the at the little Cessna Center at Stapleton Airport. $5 intro flights. They had to put blocks on the rudder pedals for me so I could touch them. And I always loved it. And then he left and... That kind of went away for a while, but then I started taking flying lessons again, and probably the turning point for me was I was working at a Phillips 66 gas station, and I write about this guy, and I can't remember his name. 
<laughs> but he was a retired dentist. And he would come in the station like one Saturday a month, bring his cars in and have me change the oil and look at the brakes, rotate tires and bring donuts and coffee and always beat me to the station before I opened up. He helped me open up. And one morning we're sitting on the workbench and he said, Butch, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to rotate your tires, check your brakes and change your oil. Yeah, I'm doing it. <laughs> and he said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I said, what do you mean? He said, are you, are you going to work in gas stations your whole life? And I said, I don't know. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a Navy pilot. And he said, you should do that. And I said, huh, right. you need a college degree. I don't even have a high school diploma. And the old guy looked at me and he said, well, then you've got a lot of work to do. And that stuck <laughs> in my mind for about a year and a half. By then I'm working at Dotson. And I went down to the community college and asked the lady about a GED. And she said, well, yeah, you can sign up for classes. Have you taken the test? And I said, no. She said, well, take the test. And if you pass, then you get it. I said, when can I take the test? She said, right now. And I think that was, I have it around here somewhere. That was sometime in 1979. Okay. 20 years old. And I took the GED test and passed and continued with flying lessons and started college down at Metro in downtown Denver as an aerospace science major. Graduated in two and a half years. In the meantime, I'd talked to a Navy recruiter and had signed up for AOCS, provided I graduated by a certain date. So I had to graduate in two and a half years. So I overloaded a bunch of semesters, 20, 22 credit hours a semester. And that was because, Butch, you were, you were bumping up on age restriction, right? I was bumping up on age restrictions for the military, and I was bumping up on age restrictions that I put on and for my life, you know? Like, okay. I knew that if I was still turning wrenches by the time I was in my late 20s, I was always going to be turning wrenches. Yeah. Because windows start to close. So, right. Yeah. There's nothing okay. wrong with turning wrenches, but man, when you want to fly airplanes, yeah, you go, you know, I would have, could have, should have, and I, and I never took the, took my shot. So, wow, yes. good yeah. on you. So I got my private instrument and commercial rating and graduated from college August of 83. And September 15th of 1983, I found myself in Pensacola, Florida with Gunny Go. How about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Simplified, do or die. I started the whole ball rolling, man, and it was it was crazy. You know, we started out with the AOCS class of '86, and I think 34 of us got commissioned. And then after that, probably a little over half half of us after that actually got wings. So the attrition rates that? were high. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so you selected props out of flight school and, and where, and where did you go to flight? where did you go to primary and intermediate and all that? I was a VT two guy at uh, Whiting field in Florida, just right outside of Pensacola Yep. for primary. And I finished at the top of my class. So I actually got drafted for jets. And at the time I'd been corresponding with jungle, Jim Ross, who was a blue angel. He told now, me, how did you, how did you, how was that connection made before when, when you were in, how, how did you meet John? Oh, in the real early 80s, 80, 81, 82, 83, the Blue Angels used to come to Loveland Fort Collins Airport every year and perform. Okay. Loveland Fort Collins is like 60 miles north of Denver. And I met him at an air show when I was in college and started talking to him. 
And he was such a nice guy and we just kind of clicked. And so I would write to him and he actually wrote me back a couple of times. And it was really something. I mean, those guys have power that I think a lot of them don't understand. As far as being able to influence people and kids, he was very inspiring and very encouraging. Yeah, but the fact that he's corresponding with you. Yes. Right? I mean, these these guys meet yeah. hundreds of thousands of people a year at air shows. Yes. And he is corresponding with you. Yes. That, that's, that's pretty outstanding. Isn't that right? cool? That's jungle in a nutshell, man. He just, when he saw you, someone was interested, he would spend it, all the time in the world with them. Oh. And I'm going to tell you as a kid, as a college kid, when you come home and you open up the mailbox and there's a, there's an envelope with your name on it and with, the, it's got the blue angel logo on it. It's like, yeah, that's like, it doesn't get any better. Listen, man, if that doesn't put lead in your pencil, nothing would. Right. Right. And Holy the other shit. Cool, cool experience I had was when I was in college, I read Baba Black Sheep. Yeah. Happy Bowling. Yeah. Yep. And so I've always been not afraid to call people. So in the back of the book I had, it said, Pappy resides in Fresno, California. <laughs> so one night I called Fresno Information, you know, 411. And I asked for Gregory Boeington in Fresno and I got a phone number. And so I called it and a lady answered. And I said, hi, my name's Butch Rutt and I'm, I'm a college kid in Denver. And I was wondering if I could speak with Mr. Boeington. And she said, well, he's not here right now. I said, okay. I said, when do you expect him back? She said, I don't know. Two or three days. He's out drunk somewhere. Oh, shit. And so I said, okay. So like four or five days later, I call again and she answers. And I said, hi, this is Butch Rudd again. Is Mr. Boeington in? She said, yes, he is. Greg. And so he answers the phone and we talked for like 45 minutes. He was so no cool. Way. No way. He was so <laughs> cool. That is outstanding. Oh, that's, that's awesome. But yeah, anyway, that's how I met Jungle. Okay. And he was a super nice guy. And then years later, when I wrote my book, I contacted him and he wrote on the back for me a little blurb. So, yeah, I mean, I finished primary and I was at the top of my class. I was drafted to go Jets. I wanted to go Jets. At the time, I had a girlfriend here back home in Littleton. And I thought, man, if I go to the boat, I'm never going to see her again. And as it turns out, I don't see her anymore anyway. But. Uh, <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> So I went props. I went to, I did intermediate at Corpus in T-34s and then advanced in, or um, intermediate at Milton at Whiting Field in T-34s and then went to Corpus Christi, a VT-31 and flew T-44s and got wings there. Outstanding. And then after that, you know, you go to, you go to San Diego and you go through Sear School Load school, then you go up to Moffitt for six months for the RAG, the P3 RAG at the P31. And then I joined my squadron after that in in Okinawa, Japan. Okay. November of 85. Yeah. November of 85. All right. Hey, the other thing I'd like to kind of do here, was, well, first of all, let me do this. I'm going to put up on, on the screen, okay. but for those listening, I, we... Briefly touched on it, but not completely. So on the screen, if you're watching, I have the cover of Butch's book, High School Dropout, Stories of a Navy Pilot. So that's available on Amazon. Build, he opens up with the story he just opened up with, talking about uh, smoking the tube off ADAC, Alaska. And in there, I seem to recall you talking about when you finally got that beast back 
to the ramp, uh, your knees were shaking so badly you could barely get out of the seat. And so it ain't just the F-14 guys landing on carriers that are faced with terrorizing situations. No, no. (laughs) That actually happened a couple times flying out of ADAC. Yeah, I bet. The weather in in ADAC would turn in two minutes. And whenever we were even in the bounce pattern doing touch and goes, we had to we had to have our bingo fuel was 22,000 pounds because our closest viable alternate was Anchorage. So, and that was three and a half hours away. And I remember being in the bounce pattern in ADAC once I was a pilot training officer and we were doing touch and goes. And I looked up, we did a touch and go downwind. Look, I see clouds coming in the distance, touch and go back on downwind. The clouds are right here. Touch and go. We had to shoot an ILS the minimum. And, and it happened that quick. Wow. Clouds coming like a freight well, train. So the ILS is the instrument landing system, and it's a it's an external radio signal that gives you both glide slope and course so that you touch down on the runway at the appropriate spot. Yeah. Wow. That is terrifying. to minimums in 10 minutes. That's, that's scary. It was. You know, and the winds up there are atrocious. The main yeah. was two two, magnetic direction of two two zero. It was kind of sit in a bowl. So there were times when you would come in and the wind's howling, and the wind's swirling. So you'll be coming down the glide path and on the localizer, and you're looking out the runway out out of your right window, and then thirty five seconds later you're looking out of the runway out your left window just to grab <laughs> because the wind's so hard. It was crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, trying to keep. Trying to keep the show linear, I guess, is what I wanted to do, was the other story you you had, and I wanted to touch on it, if you have something to talk about, was that you worked for a bail bondsman while you were in college as, as well. Was that interesting or terrifying or both? <laughs> it was all of the above to the third power. Okay. Yeah, when I was a little kid, after my dad left, we moved into the apartment. They were building some condominiums real close to our apartment complex. And I, and I had always loved cops. Back then, I wanted to be a cop when I was like 9, 10. Every kid does. Yeah, and there were a couple of Arapahoe County deputies that worked there as security, moonlighting, for an extra job. So I would ride my bike by, and I'd hang on the fence, and I'd look at these guys. You know, they're in their uniforms, and they have guns. I thought, oh, that's so cool. And Anyway, one of the guys befriended me and kind of became my surrogate dad for a number of years. Paul Carpenter was his name. He passed away a while back. And then he quit the department when they got a new sheriff he didn't like and became a bail bondsman in Montana. Years later, when I'm working in a gas station in Wheat Ridge, I ran into his wife and daughter at a McDonald's one day having lunch. And they had moved back to Denver. So I got reconnected with him when I was in college. I actually worked for him and lived at the bail bonding office in downtown Denver. And at night, yeah. So, yeah, so during the day I'd go to school and at night I'd hang out in the bonding office and we'd talk and he'd go home and I'd answer the phones at night and write bonds. And it was it was an incredible experience for a 21-year-old kid from the Burbs, I'll say that. Yeah, open yeah. your eyes as to uh, some of the, I, the the real crap going on in the yeah, world. Yeah, the real world, <laughs> you know, was not where right. I grew up. And, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about life. There were a couple of times 
guys jumped bail. One guy jumped bail. You know, when somebody gets arrested and a judge sets bail and people don't have the money, they go to a bail bondsman and they get a loan and the bondsman puts the money up to get him out of jail. And then the bondsman gets his money back after all the court proceedings are done. If they don't show up for court, the court keeps the bondsman's money. And that's when guys like Dog the Bounty Hunter and people like that come in. So right. we had, yeah, Paul wrote a big bond on a guy and the guy jumped bail and we knew he was in a house in Denver. So one morning at like 3 a.m., I remember being in this house with Paul looking for this guy and there were people sleeping. And So and, you weren't just writing the bonds, you were going after him. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, and so we found the guy and we, we drug him out of bed and put handcuffs on him and drug him out the back door. And the next day I talked to Paul and I said, Paul, we could have been killed and they would have been, it would have been a righteous shoot because we were in their house. I said, I'm not doing this anymore. He said, okay. So then he got his bounty hunter named Keith and Keith started working for us. So then one night I'm out with Keith and we're sitting in his van in Lodo in downtown Denver, looking for a guy coming out of a bar and Keith sees him. It's winter time. It's snowing. There's 12 inches of snow on the ground. Keith steps out of the van and yells at the guy. The guy runs across this vacant field. Keith jumps out of the van, pulls out a nine millimeter, and starts shooting at the guy. Bam, bam, bam. And the guy stops. Keith grabs him, cuffs him up, throws him in the back of his van. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm never, I'm never hanging out with Keith again. Yeah. So wow. it, was, it was crazy stuff back then. I don't think they do that anymore. That was yeah, Wild, Wild West days right there. Holy shit, but <laughs> Right? So, no yeah, kidding. the hunting office was interesting. I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about different kinds of people. You know, he paid me, I think, 165 bucks a week plus room and board. And it, it was a great gig. So, All right. I would recommend going in that business, though. No. 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 Right? No. 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 So, P3s. Okinawa is your first mm -hmm. duty station, right? My first deployed station. I was actually based out of Hawaii. Oh, okay. Yeah, the squad. You guys would do debts. Yeah, exactly. We were based out of Barbers Point in in Hawaii, just on the west side of Pearl Harbor. And then we do yeah. six month deployments every twelve to eighteen months. And I was and hard so, uh, to those. Yeah, yeah, that's rough. So you know, a difference between. P3 guy and a guy that's in the air in the carrier air wing is per diem. You know, when I always heard those rumors, I mean, we got per diem. <laughs> I, I never got any big checks. Well, you were making per diem when you were when you were in Okinawa. And when you're on an aircraft carrier, you don't. No, but you get free sliders 24-7. <laughs> we didn't get those. Okay. All right. Yeah, and there's an there auto go. dog ice cream machine, too, I guess, so. Yeah, no. Yeah, then um, there's that. But but flying it either out of Okinawa or ADAC, you know, when we were prosecuting submarines, um, there's a there's a couple of big sub bases in that part of the world. There's Petropavlovsk and Vladivostok, and I think Petropavlovsk is on the is on the peninsula. And so we were always intercepting submarines as they came out and going back in. And then we used to we used to run at the coast all the time and. And the MIGs would come out and intercept us, see what we were doing. And so we. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. That was, you know, they, they weren't a threat, right? I mean, they only shot down airliners. They didn't shoot down U.S. Oh, well, they were super nice guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so I, used to get, I used to get that all the time. You know, we, we would run in towards the shore 
to, to 12 miles, which was international airspace at the time, and hard right, do a 180, and go back in at 400 knots, 12 miles turn, and then go up to like 20,000 feet in orbit. And then pretty soon I hear sensor three in the headset. I got fire control radar. And sure, and then here come two MIGs, and they come up. One stay up. Uh, yeah. I perch yeah. above us, and the so, other one. So tell us what sensor three in the headset means. In the tube of a P3, you had three sensor operators. Sensors one and two monitor the sauna buoys that go into the water and track submarines. And they're pinging submarines. Yeah. And then sensor three, he controlled the radar. He controlled the ACM electronics pod and the ERDS, the the infrared camera that came out of the nose. And so the sensor three would have would have all the all the information from the from the AQM pod. And so he would hear fire control radar cracking. He'd say, fire control radar, and then we knew the MIGs were coming out, and they'd pull up right next to us, one of them. And we'd hold up, like, Playboy centerfold pictures in the window, and they'd give us a yeah. thumbs up. And <laughs> it, was, it was all pretty cool. But, yeah, no, it, in the back of my mind, I always thought about KAL 007. Right, right. That, that Korean airliner that they shot down, and I thought, man, if they're not if they're not going to hesitate about smoking a, a 747 full of innocent people, you know, they certainly won't have any qualms about about shooting us down. But well, uh, uh, shooting us and civilians down isn't really an act of war. They shoot you guys down; it's possibly fucking game on. Yeah, well, that's what, true. You know, and and this was the late '80s, so it was you know. It was the height of the Cold War, which was going to end yeah. soon, but we didn't yeah. have any idea. About didn't know it. that at the time, yeah. No. Reagan, yeah. Reagan was, uh, you know, beating up Gorbachev pretty bad, right? Yes, he was. <laughs> you know, and John Lehman was the SecNav, and they were building the 600-ship Navy, and, you know, I mean, they just crippled Russia financially, which was genius, and never fired a bullet, but... So can I uh, can can we go back about two minutes? Prosecuting submarines—that's the second right. time I've heard this. I know generally what you're talking about, but can you? So the, that's your mission, right? You're tracking that—that's the mission of the P three. Can, can you kind of? Okay, so when you prosecute a submarine, there's a couple different ways to do it. Initially, you have to find them, but what you do is. You have an idea of where they're coming from, and you have a rough idea of where they're going. So, and this is all done through the Intel geeks that are way above my pay grade. And so they give us an area and say, we think this Echo class submarine is going to be transiting this area. So we go out and we drop sauna buoys in the water, and it's a search pattern. And then we orbit, and each sauna buoy has a different channel assigned to it. And each sauna buoy will have different depths that the hydrophone deploys to. So the first thing you do when you get on station is you drop, it's called a BT buoy, a bathythermal. And you take the temperature of the water as the hydrophone deploys. Okay. Because water is like air. So you have meteorology and you have oceanography. Of course, meteorology, you have the... The adiabatic lapse rate that decreases so many degrees per thousand feet. Right. And you'll have inversions where it'll start to, the temperature will start to increase for a period of time and then begin to decrease again. And that causes you know, that's temperature inversion and well you guys know all about that. 
But oceanography is the same thing. As you decrease depth in the water, the temperature will get colder, but then you'll reach a point where the temperature will actually get warmer. And then after a period of time, it'll start to decrease again. And that's called the sonic layer depth. And it might be 300 feet deep. It might be a thousand feet wide. Okay. Submarines do not want to travel in that sonic layer depth because the sound waves travel for hundreds and hundreds of miles. You find the sonic layer depth, and if it's deep, you know, the submarines are on top of it. If it's really shallow, you know, the submarines are below it. So you set the hydrophones on your sauna buoys to where you think the submarine's going to be transiting. And then you listen for the frequencies. And that's what the sensor one and two operators do on their grams. The, the buoys, it's kind of like an EKG, like a heart monitor. And then, when okay. they, and then when they sense frequencies, they start to go crazy. Oh, that's a, that's okay. a good analogy. Oh, yeah. Awesome. All right. And then and Stick then, said to ask about the, the magnetic anomaly detector, and that's what, the, that's what the tail of the P3 was, wasn't it? A mad boom? Yeah, that big stinger out of the tail is called a mad boom. It's a magne- magnetic anomaly detector, and it just detects anomalies in the water or breaks in the magnetic field. And Which I guess a big piece of metal like a submarine would create it does it does <laughs> and in order Weird. to be effective you got to be down at like two or three hundred feet the problem with being down that low is the airplane's throwing so much sound in the water the submarine knows you're there okay just like doing an active buoy the sauna buoys i just described are passive you just, okay. the hydrophone goes down and they listen we have active buoys that will ping and tell you the exact location of the submarine but doing that, they know that you're there. And I don't think we ever really used an active buoy the whole time I was in the Navy. It was all passive. But we would track them. So you go from search pattern to a containment pattern, always trying to keep one buoy ahead of the submarine. That's pretty cool stuff, Butch. So nice. what would a what's an average P3 mission lengthwise when you're when you're prosecuting a, a submarine? What, 12 hours. What? How long? what? Wait. That sounds to me like you said 12 hours. 12 hours. 12 hours. Okay, oh, so let's talk man. about crew makeup now. Okay. How many pilots and, yeah. and crew members are you carrying for a 12-hour mission for crying out loud? A typical combat crew had 12 crew members. We had five officers, three pilots, NAVCOM, navigator communicator, and a TACO, the tactical coordinator, who was like the mission commander. And then you had seven enlisted guys, two flight engineers. They were senior enlisted, either first first class petty officers or chiefs. And then you had sensor one and two that actually listened to the sauna buoys, sensor three that we just talked about. You had an ordnanceman and an in-flight technician to fix all the electronic shit when it broke, because it always broke. Twelve <laughs> hour missions. Well, so you guys would you would rotate, uh, kind of rotate seats and go, go into the bunk, or how, how did that work? Yeah, yeah you'd rotate the pilots on the crew every hour and a half or, or two hours. You'd rotate, so you'd be in the seat for three hours, you get up for an hour and a half, you'd be in the seat for four hours, get up for two. Okay, and, wow. Yeah, and there were two bunks in the very back of the airplane and a little galley. We always had it was like a 55 gallon drum coffee pot, all the time. Drinking coffee and spitting tobacco into cups or smoking cigarettes back then, guys. Exactly.
If you'll indulge me for a moment, I'd like to take you back to a special moment the night after Christmas in our home. Picture this. My wife, having outdone herself with a fabulous dinner for nine on Christmas, was understandably exhausted and, frankly, over the joy of cooking for lots of people for at least a few days. So we decided to shake things up a bit. We handed over two HelloFresh boxes to my nephews and my daughter. What happened next? Pure magic. The sound of laughter echoing from the kitchen was heartwarming. And it wasn't just about cooking. It was about creating joy. And in about 40 minutes, we were all gathered, savoring the most amazing enchiladas and chicken sausage bolognese. It's these moments of laughter and togetherness that really make me treasure HelloFresh. Now here's something exciting for you from HelloFresh. They are offering free breakfast for life for all subscribers. Wait, what? You heard me right. Imagine kickstarting your day with a complimentary breakfast item with each delivery. That's a deal that makes mornings shine. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients, and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable, solidifying its place as America's number one meal kit. They cater to all your needs, whether it's saving money, eating healthier, or simplifying cooking. With over 45 dinner options and numerous market add-ons, there's something for everyone. Quick meals? Health-conscious choices? You bet, they have them. So, ready to transform your cooking experience? Go to HelloFresh.com slash So There I Was Free and use code So There I Was Free for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash So There I Was Free with code So There I Was Free. By doing this, you're not just getting a great deal. You're also supporting our show. You're showing HelloFresh that we have a community that listens, engages, and supports those who support us. Give them a try. We believe you'll love it as much as we do. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Getting a bunch of questions in the comment side. Did the I one was did the P3 carry any torpedoes? Yes. Oh, awesome. I did not I know that. I assumed you guys were pass, passively armed, as it were, instead of capable of uh, down. Yeah. Oh, no, no, we carry torpedoes. We carry harpoon missiles. We did mining exercises. We carry mines. We could mine inlets. So would, um, they, would you drop those from, from the wing, or uh, did you have hard points on the wing for that, or were you, did you have bomb? I've never seen it. How'd you do that? <laughs> yeah. We got Bombay. Yeah, we had hard points on the wing. We had a Bombay. Oh, we had a big ass Bombay. No shit. Yeah, I'm learning big ass Bombay stuff right now. I, I didn't know P3s <laughs> had a Bombay because when we would do rim pack exercises, all the Pacific, all the Pacific nations would get together once every two years. Do these? It's a big rim pack. Yeah. So you have Australia, you have U.S. forces, you have Korea, you have Japan, and we would all get together. And the Australian guys, they bring their P3s up. And they had luggage racks in the Bombay, and you could clip up in there and put your luggage on and stuff. The Aussies always showed up. Their entire Bombay was packed with Foster's beer. Well, of course it would be. Yeah. And they got off the airplane with little duffel bags, and that was their clothes for the two weeks. And say, dude, where's your luggage? Right here, mate. Yeah. And they'd unload the beer, and it was crazy. It was, it was so fun. Wow. It was fun. Yeah. 
So uh, and the other questions we're getting, uh, you know, obviously those are long missions. So, you know, how, how often did you fly? Were you day on, day off, a couple of days off in between? And, and then how many hours total did you get in the P3? Sounds like it was uh, easy to build a couple. Yeah. And typically after about three and a half years in the fleet, you got out with about close to 3,000 hours. Wow. Damn. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah, yeah twenty five hundred okay. wasn't uncommon. Yeah. Um, and then, were and then you, what, what, how often were you flying in any given yeah. week or month? Yeah, what's that schedule like? It depends on on deployments. You were flying a lot of eighteen hour days. We had three and a half hour pre flights, twelve and a half hour mission or twelve hour mission, and then usually like an hour or two debrief. You go back okay. to the you drink some beer, you sleep for about ten or eleven hours, and then get up and go fly again. Start planning wow. all over again. Wow. Yeah, and, and the at-home cycles were different. The at-home cycles, you know, you're 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 just fleeting up for your next deployment. Yeah, you're just so you have guys rotating out of the squadron, guys rotating in. Sure, you're trying to get people ramped up, get um, nexus in the box, get them aircraft commander calls, and oh yeah, all, all that various. Stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, and it was the same way with all the seats in the airplane. You know, sure, you're trying to get new sensor operators, new. New flight engineers come in. They got to get trained up. So yeah, I mean it was it was yeah. just a constant rotation of people, and it was always busy. Always now, busy. now, Butch, when you were deployed, did you guys have hard crews, or were you swapping crew crew members out all all the time? No, we had hard crews. I was the plane commander. My last deployment, I was a I was the plane commander of crew eight, and typically, unless somebody goes med down. They're sick, which rarely happened. Typically, you're flying with the same people all the time. <clears throat> Excuse me, all the time. Yeah, that's nice because uh, yeah. you got continuity that way. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, well, imagine learn who you count on. Know that yeah, you know, and, people and a lot of these guys, I mean, it's been 35, almost 40 years, and a lot of them I still talk to. Oh, that's awesome. You know, we'd go in, and if we were just a flight of two to go out to the bombing range, something like that, the two pilots that were in a section would meet, and we'd go into a room as just the two of us, and we'd draw up on the board all the admin crap and then talk about any particulars. And our brief would ask, last anywhere from, you know, early on, when you first start doing it, that, you know, probably an hour pre-brief for, for a simple right. mission like that. Uh-huh. And when you, you know, later you were down to 15 minutes, all right, admin stuff, standard, here's here's the particulars, let's get out of here. Right. What, you're talking three, three and a half hour pre-briefs. So you're, you're going over the duties of everybody on station where you're going to be that I imagine it's quite the room and, and it's not only one crew, right? You, you're interfacing intel, with other crews. Intel on, uh, yeah. With a, no, yeah. no. What's, what's your pre-brief like? Well, the actual pre-flight of the airplane took like three hours because you're always finding things that break. And so that's really what <laughs> Okay. Oh, yeah. And then they got to fix shit and they got to swap boxes and, and the, and the list of priorities, the autopilot was below the last item. Autopilots never worked in a P3. That's what the co-pilot was. I had a P3 once from Hawaii to Andrews Air Force Base. Holy shit. All night long without an autopilot. Oh, yeah. They didn't care about autopilot. <laughs> but then as far as a mission briefing went, the tackle would go. Sometimes as the plane commander, I would go. The junior pilot would go get the weather. We filed a flight plan, but it took us like four minutes. Because we take one of these Skillcraft government pens, okay, and they're 230 nautical miles on a high altitude chart. 
So we'd mark the mileage. Okay, bah, 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 bah. it's going to be this many miles, 4,000 pounds an hour. We need 5,000 pounds on top, plus 2,000 pounds for mom. Tell the flight engineer to give me 45,000 pounds of gas. And that's how we pre-flighted. And it drove the Air Force guys nuts. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> we'd walk into an Air Force base ops and right. spit out a flight plan in five minutes. Yeah. And say, see ya. They say, you guys are done? Oh, God, yeah. What are you guys doing? What? Why are you taking so long? We have to calculate the fuel flow rate, the density of the fuel molecules. <laughs> well, first of all, Turn we have tube. to find the right regulation that, that makes sure that says we can do what we're about to do, first of all. <laughs> Well, you know, when I realized that when I was deployed to Misawa, Japan, I was at the O Club one night in Misawa. I was sitting at the bar next to an F-16 guy, and we were talking. He said, and he asked me the same thing. How long do you guys fly for? I said, typically 12 hours. Wow. Who do you talk to? And I said, nobody. He said, what? What? No, I said, you know, we monitor an HF frequency usually, but we typically don't talk to anybody. He's like, Wow. He said, man, he said, every time I take off, I have to talk to base off. I have to tell him my altitude, my airspeed, my heading. I have to ask permission to take a turn or tell him I'm turning and what altitude, what airspeed. And I said, oh, no, we don't do any of that. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. And that's when I realized that the Air Force and the Navy are different. Oh, yeah. You know, the Navy had an OPNAV 3710. That thick. This thick right here. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like a small town phone book. Yep. With all the stuff you can't do. You know, you can't take an airplane – into a city that's hosting the Super Bowl that weekend because it looks bad, right. you know, stuff yeah. like that. And the Air Force had volumes of all the things they could do, and it was just different theories. Yeah, it was a completely yeah. different operating philosophy. It was, I, I don't know how they ever get anything done. So Sticks working in the background managed to pull this image. Oh, up. look at and that picture! There there's you go. a couple of torpedoes on the bottom of a P three there. I count the six, ten yeah. <laughs> on that one. Holy cow. So if you're watching on either YouTube or Facebook or Rumble. And then somewhere on the internet is a really cool picture of a P3 with the Bombay doors open and it's loaded for bear. All the wing hard points are full and and that's also a pretty cool nice. shot. Nice. Nice. Now where's that Bombay? Is it after the wing? It is. Or forward? Uh, it, it's forward of the wing. Okay. So you I think I see a line for it there, down, right? It looks uh, like the uh, prop prop arc line on that fuselage goes bisects it so exactly yeah yep. okay that's right where it is well that's an awesome picture yeah okay thanks thanks for finding that that was cool yeah man i actually had a 3p flying with me from and he wasn't very sharp we were going from hawaii to andrews air force base so i pulled out the approach plate books for andrews and i told them make sure these get on the airplane it's okay <laughs> so next day we take off fly all night long, getting close to Andrews. And I said, Doc, where's the approach plates? And he looked at me. I said, Doc, we need the approach plates. Approach what? And he looked at me. (laughs) I said, they're on the airplane, right? He said, oh, yeah. I said, where are they? I put them in the bomb bay. Well, you can't access the bomb bay from inside the airplane. Yeah, but you told him to put them on the airplane. He listened to what you said. And so I asked the guy, I said, hey, for training purposes, can I get a GCA? He said, okay, so we got a GCA into Andrews because I had no idea. Yeah, ground-controlled approach. approach. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and doing GCAs in Japan was really a trip because the Japanese controllers, you know, their English is pretty broken. And and so, that, you know, when you do a GCA, they'll tell you on course, on glide path. Right. Drifting left, turn right, you know, to two, three, five degrees. Okay, back on course, on course, on glide path. 
And the Japanese guys would be, on course, on gripe pass. On course, on gripe pass. We're pretty good. Don't touch nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Don't touch nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those days from Iwakuni. Okay. Holy cow, Butch. So did you, so did you do your, so back back when you uh, got winged, was it an eight year commitment after after wings or six years? Uh, what what was your commitment? Well, for me, it was five years after wings. Okay, five years after. It took you about a year and a half, two years to get your wings from start to yeah. finish. Total, I was seven and a half years in. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, so did you get off active duty and, and keep a reserve commission and stay in the reserves? Or, or I did had, not. Okay. I did not. I went to work for U.S. Customs down in Corpus Christi, Texas. Right after, uh, right after you got out of the Navy? After I got out of the Navy. I got out of the Navy September of 90, and I started with Customs January of 91. And back then, the only viable reserves outfit to fly with was out of New Orleans. So you had to get yeah. to New Orleans, and it, logistically, it was not... Yeah. So those are the guys. I, I know I've mentioned it on this show once or twice before. I was waiting to start flight school and New Orleans, Navy New Orleans P3 came uh, through Pensacola and took me out to Bermuda because my sister was living in Bermuda at the time and I went out to visit her. Okay. That was the longest winter of my life that night flying to Bermuda. Was it cold in the back? <laughs> well, you know, you had to keep the tube really cold because all the computers. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. A lot of heat generated back there. Oh, it was, it was there. there were 15 of us all huddled around the flight deck door because the only heat on the airplane was coming off the flight deck. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so Butch, did you fly P3s for U.S. Customs and Border Patrol? I did. I flew P3s. I went through a six-month federal police academy in Glencoe, Georgia, Fletsy. Yeah. yeah. And then I was a P3 pilot and instructor pilot. I went back to Fletsy. I was a firearms instructor for, for five years. No way. Back then, it was a different environment. I mean, we wore Levi's and T-shirts to work. We had free reign. We could fly anywhere we wanted to. We'd fly over Mexico. We never filed flight plans. Sounds like Julio from our squadron. (laughs) He'd fly over Mexico, coming out of the chocolates, going into Yuma, that little corner of Mexico up into Arizona. Julio just goes straight across Mexico. They'd get on. (laughs) Julio, check check your head it's okay. <laughs> He's okay. He's okay. Yeah. So. Spent a lot of time in uh, Central and South America. We flew a lot out of Panama. Spent a lot of time in Bolivia, Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador. Like you were looking for drug runners, right? Right. Yeah, we worked narcotics, narcotics interdiction. So a lot um, of night flying probably with sensors. Oh, uh, no. Night and day. Okay. Yeah, you know, narcos are – those guys had so much money – their airplanes were better equipped than ours as far as radar and navigation systems. And no, I mean, we flew a lot of daytime stuff. I spent a lot of time in Bolivia. We flew out of Santa Cruz, Bolivia. The airport there is Vero Viru. It's a huge airport and there was nothing happening there. It was actually built by the Japanese because they were going to make Bolivia a, a tourist destination at one time. And Bolivia was awesome. But we flew a lot out of Bolivia, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador. We, we worked with the host military. And, yeah, we tracked narcos. And, okay. you know, the, the whole idea was 
we would track them. And then when they landed, we'd land behind them and bust them. But they landed in really small strips and our airplane was too big. So we'd have to call out host nations to check them out. Uh, and and uh, were those typically 12-hour type mission? No, you know, when I got the customs, there were some 12s. There were a lot of 6, 8, and 10s, which, I mean, which weren't bad. It was more like a part-time job at that point <clears throat> because you're used to, you know, 18-hour days and suddenly you have 10-hour <laughs> days. It's like, ooh, it's a part-time job. <laughs> so were, were the guys you were flying with at customs, were they were – they- fellow Navy P3 guys, or were they from all different walks of life? They were primarily former P3 guys, pilots, and former P3 flight engineers. And then the radar operators in the back were former, for the most part, uh, Navy and Air Force, you know, like AWACS guys. Yeah. Yeah, people like that. Yeah. So so how, how long did you do that? Six years. I did it for six years. Initially, when I got down there, it was a lot of fun. I had the opportunity flying out of Bolivia a lot to work with Operation Snowcap, which is the DEA operation. Okay. And I spent weeks and weeks in the jungle with them at their base camp outside of Cochabamba, working with the Bolivian military and the UMAPAR. Most of the cocaine at the time was was grown in a region of Bolivia called the Chapari. And so at nighttime, we would go out with the with Snowcap and the Bolivian military, sometimes the Umpar, and we'd find little mom-and-pop operations. You, well, were, hold on a second. You're, you, Butch, are you talking about you're on foot or, yeah. or are you in an airplane? No, no. I was on the ground with the, with the Snowcap guys. What the hell are you thinking? It would fly. It was fun, man. It was awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you were telling me you were riding in a helicopter. Yeah, doing um, that too. So they didn't cert you guys. No, a snowcap team is built like a like a spec ops team. So they're twelve men teams. There were DEA agents from around the country that would apply to be part of snowcap. If they got accepted, they had to go through a whole bunch of training. They had to go to Spanish school. They had to go to a little mini ranger school down in Fort Benning. They had to go to a just jungle survival training. And then once they finished all their stuff, they got put on a team. And when their team's number came up, they went down in country and they were down there for three months. And so I would, I would hook up with those guys outside of Santa Cruz in, in the coach at their base camp. Okay. And we hang out, and they and they were built. I mean, just like a special forces unit. They had a CO, they had an XO, they had an operations officer, they had an admin officer, a training officer, a firearms guy, an EOD guy, a medic. We're down in the bush. I was down in the bush with them during the day. I'd talk to our airplanes and have them overfly locations. These guys wanted pictures of, and then at night I'd go out with them on occasion, and it was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. And you were the, were you the firearms guy? No, no. What was your job? No, they had their own firearms guy. Uh, Actually, my director, the first time I went down there, before I left Texas, my director said, do not carry a gun down there. And I said, okay. And I got down there and met, and met the team leader, actually the, the senior agent in charge. 
Okay. And I said, my director told me I can't carry a gun. He said, okay, go over there, see Todd and get your gun. And then go over here and get your fatigues and go over here. So, <laughs> I was, Okay. Go over there and get your gun. Yeah. That you're not and then I got to the point where the EOD guy, the explosive guy, would sometimes at night, he'd give me a sheet of paper with a bunch of lengths on it, numbers. And so he taught me how to cut debt cord and crimp blasting caps on the end of it. And then, so I do all these rings, or the, all these runs of debt cord for him. And Tell then me you were tough like John Wayne. Did you crimp them with your teeth? No. Oh, <laughs> and we'd sit out and drink beer at night, and I'd, and I'd cut debt cord for him. And, and then one morning, we got... We threw a bunch of ordnance into a Huey helicopter and we were going to go out to these little clandestine airfields where they took off and crater the fields to make them unusable. And so I remember that morning, man, flying in this Huey, flown by these Bolivian pilots sitting on this Huey with my feet on the skids and an M16 across my lap. And we're like treetop level over triple canopy jungle and the sun's just coming up. And I thought, man. This is as close to Vietnam as I'm ever going to get. It was so cool. I uh, I would think you would be saying, how did I get myself in this predicament? <laughs> oh, well. I mean, it sounds great. I mean, it really does. But, but the, you know, the... the what, what's, the what's the word I'm looking for? The, the real, you know, the, the, the impact. It's, it's surreal is what it's it is. Among, yes. You know? It was Heat on the skids, sun coming up over triple canopy with an M16 across your lap, and you got a bunch of explosives sitting behind you. You think I, I'm thinking this is cool. Wait a minute. Then I start thinking of all the things that could possibly go this, wrong. At yeah, this, moment. this is not how most people spend their mornings. But all right, <laughs> that's a great way to catch a sunrise. But uh, join the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. Fly yeah. B3s. They said yeah. they said it was going to be awesome. Fun what a and great easy. part-time job. Yeah. Well, I was one of the few guys in my office that actually volunteered to do that. Whoa. whoa, whoa. Most of the guys I've... You I've, volunteered for this. Oh, sure. Yeah. But you, but I mean, you, you are... I mean, most of the guys I flew with were married. You know, they had kids. Great guys. They were great <laughs> pilots. They were great agents. Yeah. Really good shots. But they didn't want to be gone for three or four weeks at a time. And I was okay. like, I was single. I'm like, hey, I'll go. Okay. Hey, I want to back up too and, and cover a term. I just want to cross. We just went across it. And of course, Fig and I got it when we were at the basic school. We learned about all this stuff. What is debt cord? What are blasting caps? Oh, How does yeah. it work? Thank you. Why That's does it good. work? Yeah. Oh, well, they're detonation cords. And it's like a real, it's like a little skinny white rope, but it's got explosives in it. It's kind of like a yeah. fuse. Yeah. And then. And then caps. A fuse like, that goes off all at once, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it'll go. Yeah. And and then and then the blasting caps are silver. They're you know they're primers, kind of almost like a primer you have. It's the ignition in the source, right? It's, it's yeah. the ignition source yeah. for the explosive. And so it would make the spark, and then the dead cord would burn, and then it hit the explosive, and boom, boom, yeah, nice. Uh, I guess well, then what I'm getting to is why would you use debt cord? You were going out to create the runways. Debt cord wasn't going to do that. So how, how did that work for you? Well, well, no. Then the EOD guy would attach the shaped charges onto the debt cord. And we'd be a long way away when he detonated it. You don't want to be on top of it when it goes. So 
important safety tip, folks. (laughs) We would use shake charges to to blow deep holes in the runways, and then he would put other charges in there that would just crater the hell out of them, make huge holes. And then C5 on the trees, and we'd blow that up, and the trees would topple down on the runways to try to make them unusable. You know, the thing is, down there in Bolivia, the people that grew the cocoa, they were like mom-and-pop operations, and the cartels came in and paid them. They used to grow coffee, but there was more money in dope than coffee, so the cartels came in and talked to them and said, we'll pay you all this money if you grow cocoa leaves. So they started growing cocoa, and they would, they would, they would mix the cocoa. They used precursors and cook it into a paste, and they put the paste in five-gallon buckets, and then they'd use little single-engine airplanes to fly out of these small strips in the jungle, and they'd fly it up into southern Colombia where they had big labs, and they would manufacture it into the powder, package it into kilos, and use bigger airplanes to fly it out of Colombia. And so okay. that's the reason we were in Bolivia was okay. to take down these little clandestine operations. And so the type of guys you were trying to foil, I guess, are, are the guys like the, there's a movie called American Made, and it's about a former TWA pilot, Barry Seal, who started running drugs. Yeah. All right. so. mm-hmm. yeah. I think Barry Seals flew DC-3s, and yeah. he was primarily out of Columbia. Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, back then people, you know. And Stitch says now they're using submarines. <laughs> So get the P3s oh. back out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I spent time in subs in the Navy, but we passed that. But anyway, so yeah, so that's the reason I was down there. You know, back then my sisters used to tell everybody I, I worked for the DEA. I was a DEA agent. And I'd say, oh, no, I wasn't a DEA. I worked with them. And, and then you just give up, you know, yeah. you're like, okay. But it was a cool time. And back then people say, well, well, what's it really like? And back then there were two movies out that were really accurate. One was Traffic with Michael Douglas yep. and it showed the drug war from different perspectives from the politician side of it to the DEA street agent side of it, to the Mexican police side of it, to the street use side of it. And it was really well done. And then another one was clear and present danger with Harrison Ford. Oh, yeah. um, and that was pretty realistic as far as a lot of the events and, and a lot of the facilities that they had back then. And that, um, that was that started as a Tom Clancy book. If, so if you don't want to watch a movie, that's a good book to read. It is. It's a big yeah. fat book. But you know, Clancy researches his stuff, or did, yeah, uh, very well. And then since then, now there's a couple Netflix shows on. Oh, one Narcos. Was, Narcos. Yeah, one was Narcos, and that's dead nuts accurate. And then the other one is, it's called The Last Narc, and it's a four parts, three or four part series about Kiki Camarena. Oh, right. And he was a DEA agent that was abducted in Guadalajara and tortured and killed. That one's really, really good. But yeah. Yeah, so, I think that's... Didn't Reagan shut down the the border over that one? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was horrific. That was a really bad deal. I mean, yeah. back when I was down there, the rumor was we all had million-dollar bounties on our heads from the narcos and stuff, but... I was never concerned because I knew that they would never target us again like that because it literally would have started World War III for them. And so they were smart enough, I mean, not to really mess with us. Sure. We didn't, I mean, I never felt endangered. 
out in the town, like in Santa Cruz or Guayaquil, Ecuador, or or Chicago, Peru, or Panama. I never felt I never felt like we were really targeted. Sure, sure. Mm-mm. So we oh, you, uh, you we, we might have breezed over it. Did, did I hear you we say did. submarines? You did little. You had a little submarine expedition. Yeah, when I was in Hawaii as a pilot training officer, we were required every day to read the message boards. You know those aluminum books. Yep. And there was a red, red one, a yellow one, and a green one. Green was like general operations. Yellow was confidential. Red was top secret. And we had to read it and then initial each item that that we had read. Right. But in the green book, they were. They would occasionally ask for VP, which is fixed wing patrol, P3, liaison officers, to to go on these ships and while while they're doing workup exercises. And so I would volunteer for that. And I was on a submarine, the first sub I was on, I was on it for like three weeks. It was a boomer converted to a slow attack. And it was it was a nuke sub out of Pearl. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I signed up and I went. And it was probably one of the coolest things I'd ever done. Be on a nuclear submarine for three weeks, man. How about that? And it was right at it. This was maybe 87. I don't, I don't even think I was a, I don't think I was a patrol plane commander at the time. Okay. But it was right after the movie Top Gun came out. And so right. all these guys on the submarine thought that my life was like Tom Cruise. And all I did was turn around and drink and, you know, cruise chicks. Play volleyball with your shirt off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Buzzing the um, tower. But it was really interesting. And I was on there, and I, I spent a lot of time on the bridge of the sub with either chief of the watch or the captain of the boat or the XO. And while we were doing exercises – they would ask me, okay, so as a P3 guy, what are you thinking right now? I said, well, uh, I'd be thinking this, and I'd be dropping buoys here, and I'd be looking for this and that. and that. You know, so we traded information back and forth. I can't get real classified with it. And, you know, at night I would have dinner with the captain in his stateroom. He had his little Filipino MS that would come in and service in his coat and tie. And wow. And dirt and coffee. And probably the coolest experience I had was there was a tunnel on the submarine and it went from, Oh, I just remember being in the wardroom, having breakfast one of the first mornings with the XO of the boat. And he was a Lieutenant commander. And there was a table, four or five guys in the corner. I said, who are those guys? He said, don't even think about it, buddy. He said, those are the nukes. Those guys run the reactor. And unless you want to talk about splitting atoms or atomic fusion, (laughs) they got nothing to talk about. (laughs) <laughs> you know, talk about football or women or you know bourbon none of that uh, they're <laughs> physics geeks Absolutely. Uh, bless them, they're on our side right but, but there was a tunnel in the sub when you went from 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 the submarine to get into engineering spaces and you had to open up a hatch and walk through and close the hatch and it was about a fifth maybe 10 or 12 foot area another hatch. And if you went through that hatch, you walk down and that's where the nukes hung out in the engineering spaces. But on the floor of that tunnel was a steel plate about the size of a manhole cover. And it was about a quarter inch thick, had a couple holes in it. And you could pull that thing off the floor and slide it. And you were looking through five feet of stained glass, leaded glass. 
It was tinted yellow. And you were looking right down onto the top of the reactor. And I laid there for hours, hours, fascinated. I'd lay there and look down and just watch the rods come up and down. And I'm thinking, man, I grew up in Littleton, Colorado and dropped out of high school. And I'm looking at a nuclear reactor operating. It, it was bizarre to me. You know, <laughs> you know, repeat, it's all starting to make sense now. There you go. <laughs> it's all starting to make sense. Exactly. And I, and I still glow in the dark a little bit. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. He's actually awesome, in a darkened man. room at night. <laughs> His teeth glow. Oh, dude, that's that's really cool, though. It was so wild. Yeah. Yeah, and I got to go up on the, on the sail of the ship, of the sub, when we were surfaced. And they put me on the dive planes one time. Captain put a harness on me. Had a guy put a harness on me. I sat on the dive planes of the sub. And we're doing like, I don't know, 15 knots on the surface. Oh, man. Big wave. And it was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Well, that and is pretty saying, cool. King of the world. I said, no, I'm not going anywhere. This is fine. Get out further. <laughs> yeah. You're king of the world. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. And I think you told me on one of the pre-chats, too, that uh, after dinner, you and the captain would have a glass of iced tea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. He hit them yeah. in scotch bottles so no one would drink the guy's tea. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it, yeah, I mean, it was such a great experience. I actually yeah. sat in. They they had me sit in on a board for a young enlisted kid that was getting us dolphins. And I was oh, amazed. You got to say what that is. Got to tell people what the dolphins are. The dolphins are the little, the little, the water wings. wings. Yeah. The submarine guys wear them. The surface guys wear them. Yeah, the water wings they call them. I think. Okay. Yeah, but they were dolphins, and the enlisted guys had silver dolphins, and the officers, and I think the chiefs had gold dolphins. Yeah. But they're literally, it's like two dolphins, nose to nose, and it's kind of like their wings. Yeah. And so I got to sit in on a board. This kid was getting his dolphins. Oh, that's cool. And I was amazed at how sharp those guys were. They knew every valve, every switch, every hatch on that submarine. Yeah, they don't let dumb guys. And they got drilled with questions for like 12 hours. Yeah, yeah they don't let air pilots on submarines for a no. reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We dumb, oh, we dumb the place down as soon as we step foot on board. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harriers had to be cool. The only time I've seen Harriers is at air shows. A couple of times. It was a great air show bird. I'll give them that. Uh, It was a lot of fun to fly. That's that's really all we did was practice for air shows and fly air shows. (laughs) Thanks, man. Hey, why not? Why not? Yeah. So all of that. And the other thing you did, I guess, you were were a rag instructor, too. So you taught new guys who just got in their wings how to fly the P3. I did. I did. Rag instructor. You know, you taught... CPTs, which are cockpit procedure trainers, okay. they're just pictures of the cockpit panels, and they had to know where the switches are for dirt, you know, for certain things. And then I taught full flight sims, and then I taught in the airplane when you had young ensigns literally trying to kill you every day. Of course, it was fun. It was fun. Back then, I developed a real appreciation for Mister Rogers. There were days when I was just done trying to be killed. So I'd go to my apartment in Mountain View right outside the gate of Moffitt, and I'd shut all the blinds, and I'd crank the AC down to like 60, and I'd lay on the couch underneath this afghan that my mom knitted me, 
and I would turn on Mr. Rogers. And we always took a trip with Mr. Rogers. You always, you always right. go, you know, the Magic Kingdom, and you go on field trips. And one time we went to the Spoon Factory. And I remember after a really hard day one afternoon, I'm laying on my couch, and we're at the Spoon Factory. And they had all these spoons coming down the conveyor belt into a great big cardboard bin. And Mr. Rogers says, look at all the spoons. And I laid on the couch and said, ooh. Look at all the spoons. <laughs> really, you just had to unplug, you know. Okay. Calm yourself down, I guess. Yeah. Oh, man. So something yeah. you kind of glossed over there, but I'll tell you what, anybody who's either an aspiring young aviator, I would do this. Remember Fig having to do uh, blind cockpit? Oh, get yeah. in the get in to do the blindfold. All right. Oh, Where's yeah. the sw- you know, where are your flaps? Where's, the, Where's switch? the switch for your, this light? Where's the switch for your transponder? You had to do it blindfolded. And I highly recommend anybody who wants to really get a good feel for their airplane have the ability to blind. You know, that's a really good contract. tip, and that's something we did not do. The oh, only yeah. thing I did okay. blindfolded was the panic in a drum, the helo dunker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I hated. I hated. Panic um, in a drum. Nice. Yeah. But, yeah. All right. But, no, I mean, that's actually a really good tip. That's a great tip. Yeah, that it just you know you have you know where things are and you and I don't I wouldn't go flipping switches blindly, but at least you know where yeah. to get your hands in the neighborhood and then look right. and go. But yeah, just be there on the may touch. Be time. Yeah. So mm-hmm. all right. So what's the closest a student ever came to uh, taking you out with him? Um, probably we were doing two engine high work, and he kicked the wrong rudder. And so two engines on one wing off, two engines on, on the other right. wing? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and he went full power on the two operating engines and kicked the wrong rudder. And the airplane went inverted like that. I, I was going to say, I bet sounds like you went for uh, went to the rodeo in about Holy half a second shit. flat. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I'm thinking you didn't stay on the bull. <laughs> no, I did not. No. No, I missed that one. I... I upped my guard position greatly after that little extravaganza. Um, Yeah. You know, by and large, by the time they got into the airplane, for the most part, they had been through the Sims, you know, and they had a pretty good feel. But you were single pilot. I remember, I remember the first time I had my first kid on his, in his first flight in a P3 and set takeoff power and he's in the left seat. And all he could say was, God damn, this thing's got a lot of power. It was 4,600 shaft an engine, so <laughs> it was pretty powerful. And when the airplane's light, man, it'll go. Yeah. yeah. God damn, this thing's got a lot of power. Yeah, it does. 80 knots. God damn, this thing's got a lot of power. Rotate. <laughs> God damn, this thing's got a lot of power. <laughs> okay, positive rate. God damn, this thing's got a lot of power. Gear up, you know. And I'm like, dude, you got to focus, dude. Fly. Fly. Yeah, come on back. Yeah. So well, let me ask this. So were you, was it just the flight crew? When when you were out doing that at the rag, or you didn't have guys in the back training, did you? No, no, not typically. It was just yeah. okay. it was just me, two student pilots, an instructor, flight engineer, okay. one or two student flight engineers, and they rotate through the seat. That's still enough people to terrify, though, to find yourself oh, yeah. uh, in <laughs> inferred. And then you had an aft observer, a seasoned crew guy that would you know watch engine starts and look for traffic and stuff like that. But, oh, yeah. Me. 
Yeah. So that was fun. I didn't really have... I, when I was at the RAG, attached to VP31, it was called the VIP crew, the VIP crew. And it was two lieutenant commanders, a couple of senior flight engineers, an MS. And they flew Sync Pack Fleet. They flew Admiral Fetterman at the time around. And he was okay. heading down, at, down in San Diego at North Island. <clears throat> but his airplane was at Moffett for maintenance reasons and operations reasons. And the two lieutenant commanders liked me. So whenever they had to go on long flights and they needed more than two pilots, they always got me to go with them. So the first trip, we flew Admiral Jack Fetterman down to Christchurch, New Zealand via Tahiti. And then he, he went down to McMurdo down in South Pole with VXE-6 in the C-130s on skis. Yeah. So we essentially had like two weeks off in Christchurch. It was a vacation. Was, was that a, sure. a P-3? The Admiral's uh, plane? Yeah, right. It was a P-3, but it was outfitted. It was a VIP bird. I was going to say. So, yeah, oh, so it had, had a nice interior. and uh, Oh, yeah. Big yeah. leather seats and a big queen-size queen bed in the back. And nice. Had a big galley. And, oh, yeah. Hold on. You guys didn't have that in the fleet? Oh, when you're we out doing oh. anti-sub ops? You didn't we have had, comfy beds and leather chairs? and <laughs> We had ovens. That were like out of 707. We had one oven and a coffee pot. And that was pretty much our our, our contingent. Oh, man. But yeah, no. So we got to fly him. He was a super nice guy. Very engaging. He flew spads in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I think. Maybe, and maybe A6s as well. But super nice guy. And the first time, you know, we flew to Tahiti and spent two days there while he was doing conferences and very first leg we picked him up in san diego and blasting out and i'm walking through the tube trying to get to the bathroom didn't want to bother him he's in a big leather seat by the by the back window and i'm walking by and he looks up and butch yes sir have a seat so i sat <laughs> in the chair next to him and we talked for like 45 minutes he says where are you from you know how do you like P3s? How'd you like the fleet? Da, 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 da. He was so engaging and so nice. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was pretty cool. I, I, that, that's the first real admiral I had ever talked with. Isn't um, it cool? Isn't it cool when you meet a, a, you know, a general officer like that that's a real person and, and actually gives a shit? Oh, he was absolutely a yeah. sweetheart, man. Not a Absolutely. Just a great, great human. And, you know, we talked about his tours in D.C. and how much he hated Washington, D.C. You know, he says, oh, all the old parties and, you know, it's hard on your liver when you're in D.C. You got all these cocktail parties. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So I flew with the VIP crew a couple of times, which was really fun. When I was in the fleet in Hawaii, we had a couple of lieutenant commanders that had rotated out of a squadron called VPU2 projects, special projects, spook squadron. And they got me hooked up with them when I was in Hawaii as a rental, <clears throat> as a rental pilot. So I flew with projects a couple of times. And that was really, really interesting stuff. Most of the gear in the airplane I wasn't allowed to see. It was all behind curtains. Um, never met any of the operators. They were all behind curtains. So they were, there doing, they were doing testing? They were doing whatever they do. We were flying off the coast of Vietnam one time. <laughs> okay. uh, one time we're flying... 
in the Pacific. You're the aircraft commander. You're responsible for everything on board, anything that may or may not go on, but you're not allowed to know what any of that is. Yeah, I was I was not the plane <laughs> commander. I was just there as a as a rental pilot. Yeah, but okay, still, you know, the, but the commander's probably in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah, one time I was out with them. I think we were flying out of Misawa, Japan. Or I think Misawa. We were flying out. Of the, we were in the North okay. Pacific. And they, you know, they knew that the Russians were going to launch an ICBM for training. And it was going to come up somewhere in the North Pacific. And it was going to splash down somewhere near Midway. And they told me, I said, okay, here's the drill, Butch. If you're in the left seat, they had a big fancy camera behind the cockpit on the left side. If you're in the left seat and this thing comes out of the water and they call it, just keep it in the window. Keep it in the window. Keep rolling right. the airplane. Keep it in the window. I said, okay. So sure as shit, man, when that thing broke the surface, I was in the left seat. Keep it in the window. The flight engineer told me, I'll, I'll take care of the power and keep the airplane flying. You just keep that in the window. And I kept rolling and rolling and rolling and... I think we were like 135 degrees. Oh, shit. The airplane was inverted. It was still in the window, and then we broke it off and righted the airplane. But I remember that's another – that was another moment for me. When Do you I have thought, that picture? Oh, no. I never got a picture. No. It's, no, it's in my brain. It's, yeah, there it's you go. It's ingrained wow. in his memory. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know, but I remember thinking to myself, this is exactly what the beginning of the end of the world looks like right here. Missiles are going to start coming out of the water. And it was That's like, great. wow. What kind of range were you, okay, if you estimate how far away from it when it came out of the water were you when you, were, oh, when you picked I, it up? Realistically, I want to say probably five miles. Oh, shit. That's a lot closer. You were right there. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah, I'd say five miles. Maybe a little further. It was big. And it was bright. And it was... Wow. Yeah. That was a game changer for me, seeing the beginning of the end of the world, how it might look. And then the other one was we were in, we were flying in Peru. And there were, we were tracking a guy in a light twin engine airplane. And we called and the Peruvian military sent out two A-37s. Okay. Tweets. Yeah. You know, the Air Force used but, them as primary jet trainers. Down there, they are front-line fighters. They put hard points on them, yeah. Fighters, bombs. Yeah, they did. And guns. And so we're we're tracking this guy, and these two A-37s pull up. We were like 1,000 feet, maybe 1,500. And he's down pretty low. And these A-37s pull up. One of them stays behind him, and another one pulls up right next to the airplane and he waggles his wings and turns. The follow international me. signal for follow me. Follow yeah. me. Come back around, the guy doesn't change course, pulls up again, waggles the wings, follow me, pulls off. Guy doesn't listen. He pulls up not a beam this time and blasts the guns on the airplane. So you see the tracers flying by the airplane. And he pulls up again. Wags his wings, follow me, pulls off, doesn't do it, doesn't do it. So finally, they both get up behind them, and they shoot rounds into the airplane. Airplane's still flying, pull up, follow me, nothing. So they start running in on this guy and start shooting this airplane full of holes. Just doing gun runs. And this guy ditches the airplane in a river. And we watch him ditch the airplane. The left door opens up. 
He gets out of the airplane, swims onto the shore bank, and disappears into the jungle. And these A-37s take turns peppering this airplane. And in the river, the current, the airplane's floating and turning down river. And they pepper this airplane until it sinks. And then they head off. Like and we're heading back to, I think we were flying out of Chicalayo, Peru at the time, which is like 300 miles north of Lima on the coast. And on the way back, I'm thinking about that poor son of a bitch. And I thought, he'll never make it. He's in triple canopy jungle. He's going to get eaten by bugs or some monster whenever lives down there. Right. I just thought, man, I hope it was worth it, dude. Right. Yeah. Holy I don't shit. know. But, um, yeah. That's so, yeah, I mean, we used to track these guys out of South America, out of Colombia. And typically, they would either fly north and airdrop their stuff south of Puerto Rico, where it'd get picked up by go-fast boats. Because once you got dope into Puerto Rico, it was home free, because that's a U.S. territory. So when you fly from Puerto Rico to the States, you never go through customs. Right. Or, or they would fly west through the Bay of Panama and hug the west coast of Central America and fly it into Mexico. And then from there, it would get muled either by people or trucks or cars into, into the United States. So that was our primary area of operation. And that's what we did. Yeah. And it was fun, man. We made a lot of bucks. Like, you know, we put a lot of dope on the table for the first few years I was there. And then nice. after that, the government made the air force, uh, the lead agency in the drug war. And that just, they were done putting dope on table. It was all about, Tracking targets, you know, TOIs, targets of interest. How many targets of interest do you have? Did you have? I don't know. Who cares? Eight, <laughs> nine, 15, who cares? No, um, I'm kidding. Yeah, so I got into an argument. I was plane commander on a detachment in Panama when I was with Customs. And I had this colonel call me one Saturday night and say, you guys are going to fly tomorrow from 09 to 1500. I said, no, we're not. He said, yeah, you are. I said, no, we're not. We're not wasting our time. Well, what do you mean? I said, look, these guys are narcos, but they're devout Catholics. They don't work on Sundays. We're not going to waste our time. We got in the big testing contest over that. And then did you fly? Another, time, another time a guy called me, yeah, you guys are going to fly tomorrow night. I said, no, we're not going to fly tomorrow night. He said, yeah. I said, why do you want us to fly tomorrow night? Well, it's a full moon. I said, dude, that, that theory went out with the 70s, man. These guys have better navigation, better radar than we have. They don't give a shit about a full moon. We're not going. We know they're not going tomorrow night. So, yeah, so that got pretty frustrating. And that's, you know, after about a year and a half, I, I wanted to get out of the aviation side and just go be a street agent. I actually had a job offer from the rack office here in Denver. I just wanted to get away from the flying for a while the aviation guys wouldn't let it, let me go. And they said, no, we need pilots. And I said, well, if you don't let me go, I'm going to quit. And they said, okay. So I quit. And that's when I got on with Northwest Airlines in 97. Okay. Flew DC-9s for a couple of years. Flew DC-10. I wrenched on that for six. And then I flew the A320 the last couple of years I was there. We referred to flying the DC-9 as pushing the dumpster to another happy hour. Um, <laughs> airline life was fun back then. <laughs> pushing the dumpster to another happy hour wow that's that's that's, that's, a, that's a that's a great analogy right there <laughs> yeah. it was fun and then 07 we took big pay cuts and 
you know, after September 11th, the job got to be no fun, a lot of it. And it was like, okay. So I quit and got on with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. I was a deputy sheriff for 15 years. Right there in Colorado. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Any, we're getting right to a point where we probably need to start looking at land in the plane. Any uh, particular funny stories from either OCS or the police academy or on the street? Oh, as a deputy oh sheriff? OCS. Gunny Go. You guys had Gunny Go. Oh, there yeah. You go. yeah. Gunny Go. He was and show I 17, I think. I'll find it. Yeah. And today I love the guy and I talked to him on the phone. I got his number. And my drill instructor was Gunnery Sergeant Washington. United States Marine Corps. But you want to talk about funny, funny guys. 19. When you're there, it's not funny. Yeah. But looking back, it was a riot. Oh, yeah. They're full-on comedians. Oh. Oh. There was a kid, and he was in a different class than me. And he was a real tall, skinny black dude. And he was not he was not handsome. He looked like a human version of a cartoon character out of the Bill Cosby show. And he had really super thick glasses, like NASA telescope lens thick. Yes. <laughs> so the kid had to be maybe a maintenance officer, an intel guy. Because all those guys had to go through OCS as well. Pilots, flight officers, aviation intel, and aviation maintenance officers had to go through AOCS. And when you walked in the chow hall, you had to pound on the brass and say your number. One, two, three. And every time I was in the chow hall and this kid came in, he pounded 27. And the DI's table was at the far corner of the chow hall. There was usually four, maybe five sitting there at a time. And this kid would say his number and I'd wait for a second and I'd hear go forth fire up. Oh, goggles. Oh, goggles. Come here, sweetheart. And he, this kid would have to go over to the DI table and look into this ice cream freezer with a mirror on it. And Gunny go with him. Tell me why you are so ugly, boy. Why are you so damn ugly, boy? <laughs> I feel so bad for this kid. He's sweating bullets. All he wants to do is eat and go, you know. But nope, never happened. Oh, goggles. Yeah. Yeah, that was Gunny Go in his prime, baby. Yep. That's awesome. Oh, you know, I, I started having flashbacks myself. Of o- yeah. Of OCS, well, OCS. the first drill instructor I met was Gunnery Sergeant Crenshaw, who was a mountain of a man. And he was the biggest, darkest human being I had ever seen in my life. And the very first morning of Poopyville, you're laying there in your rack. And you know at 5 o'clock, shit's hitting the fan. But you have no idea what time it is. There's no clocks. They take your watches. So you don't know if it's five minutes after midnight or... If it's one minute to 5 a.m. Right. And you lay there terrified. And pretty soon you just go back to sleep and the trash cans hit the wall and the lights are coming on. And you hear, get on my line, get on my line. And you're getting dressed and you're running. And I was the last guy out of a four-man room. And I grabbed the threshold of the door and, you know, launch myself out. And I did that. And boom, I hit something so hard. And I stop and I'm looking down. And I can see my reflection in these two polished boots. Oh, shit. And I start looking up, man, camo, camo, tree trunks, and I see this big brass belt buckle, and I can see my reflection and the horror in my eyes, man. <laughs> and I up and looking up, and all I see is this, this is jet black face and this campaign cover and these white teeth and these white eyeballs, and he looks at me, and he said, boy, we ain't going to get along. 
I feed myself a little bit, and that started Poopyville. I feed myself a little bit. I love it. I mean, there was Crenshaw, there was Gunny Go, there was Master Sergeant Flager, there was Gunny Washington, Gunny Kerr. I think Fixton was still there at the time, training Staff Sergeant Walker. Yeah. And the fun began. Oh, yeah. Good times, man. Okay, so we had a guy in our squadron in Hawaii. And I'm not going to say his name, but he wasn't very bright. We, <laughs> we called him Spicoli. Because if you ever saw that movie, Fast Times at Ridgemont yep. High. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was Spicoli. And I remember one time I was flying with Spicoli. He got plus on my crew for a ASW of submarine mission, 12-hour flight. I'm back in the galley, and Spicoli has a little igloo lunchbox. And I open it up. And for a 12-hour flight, this guy brought three packs of Marlboros, five Snickers bars, and a six-pack of Coke. Wow. That's a substance for the for the 12 hours. Wow. But Man, he's going to run out of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> but Spicoli's with his crew, and they're south of Hawaii, and they're coming up to Honolulu. And the plane commander tells Spicoli, hey, call center and get our clearance back to Barber's. So Spicoli, you know, Yankee Bravo 06, you know, 120 miles south and barbers. And the controller said, uh, okay, okay. Squawk, you know, gave it, gave a code, transponder code, you know, squawk 6573. And then, and then the controller said, Yankee Bravo, you know, 06, radar contact. You have traffic two o'clock opposite direction, altitude unknown. And Spicoli, Yankee Bravo 06, Nordo. Controller says, Yankee Bravo 06, how do you read this transmitter? Loud and clear. <laughs> Yankee Bravo 06, traffic 2 o'clock opposite direction, altitude unknown. Yankee Bravo 06, Nordo. <laughs> he got Nordo and no joy confused. <laughs> Nordo means no radio. Can't no radio. hear you. Can't talk. Yeah, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> and so that goes on for a period of time. And I'm sure that that controller still has a cassette tape of that. <laughs> they have like their controller parties or whenever yeah. they have their get-togethers. Yeah. I'm sure he slips it in there for laughs. Listen to this idiot. Gordo. <laughs> yeah. That's outstanding. Oh, man. Well, sadly, we've come to the point in our show where uh, we probably need we, we to at, uh, start we, yeah, wrapping up. We've been at up. this an hour and yeah. almost 35 minutes, but you yeah. went like that. It, wow. Bang. Right through it. I'll remind everybody again that Butch has a book out, High School Dropout, Stories of a Navy Pilot. Outstanding read. I highly recommend go get it. And and if you got someone who's a, an aspiring aviator, maybe and particularly struggling a little bit with the academics in their life and not sure that they want to want to do something, I'd recommend this book as a read. That you know what obstacles can be overcome, and dropping out of high school ain't the end of the world if you put your mind to it. You can get get where you want to go. So really good read. So thank you for for sharing that with us, and thank you for your service, sir. Thank you guys. Thanks for thank you for your service, Butch. Yeah. Hey, why? Hey, why we're thanking people? Let's let's thank all of our veterans. Exactly. We need thank to get you a, for serving our country, and thank you to the families that support them. There's a lot more sacrifice going on on the home front than people seem to be aware. So we need to get a couple other thank yous out there. First and foremost, Dave Hamilton over at BackbeatMedia.com, who does all the advertising for this show and has his own shows: the Mac Geek Gab, the Gig Gab for musicians, and the Business Brain for entrepreneurs. 
If you have a show and want some advertising, reach out to BackBeatMedia.com and see if they can't help you find uh, find a fit for your show. So We have a glossary. If you yeah. heard a term and you don't know what it means, check out the glossary. And if it's not in the glossary, well, you need to get a hold of sticks. You can get a hold of sticks. <laughs> At sticks at so there I was dot us. I say sticks because you could email repeat and I, but sticks is actually the brains of the operation. Yeah, yeah. sticks at so there I was dot us, or you know, like he said, figure repeat at so there I was dot us. But if you want a real answer, you know where to go. We're just saying, <laughs> just saying, just saying. We're yeah. more than help. We're more than happy to, to you know to answer questions. But if you want a good answer, right, you probably ought to go to sticks, right. You want some of the cool merch that, uh, you know, these these hats are great. I'm wearing the polo shirt with the uh, So There I Was logo. Beach towels, bikinis coming up in the summer. Maybe you're in the Southern Hemisphere listening. Time to get a, yourself a bikini now at So There I Was at US slash merch. It's a good looking bikini, man. A couple other people we need to thank. Well, not a couple. There's a, a whole bunch. The people over at So There I Was at US slash Patreon who take their hard-earned money and give it to a couple of numbskulls like us. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's very humbling, and, and we thank you. It, indeed, it, it, it we do. It, it uh, helps us get this show to you. It does. And we, could, we couldn't do it without your support. We really couldn't. Um, it's an expensive proposition, and your, your help and support is deeply appreciated. So thank you, everyone over at Patreon, who's uh, supporting us couple other quick thank yous out there. They've been commenting on the YouTube stream and the Facebook stream during the show and providing us with information to uh, to put up and questions to ask. Uh, Chase Cole is uh, managing our Facebook page. Thank you, Maureen. Appreciate uh, all your help and support. Thank you, Sticks, for all you do for us. And to Brad Silcat at BDSAviationPhotography.com, who lets us use a lot of his cool images uh, on the show. And then uh, a couple other people we need to thank. If well, I, I hear them in the background. That's oh, it. Always makes, yes, it's the two uh, Air Force F-16 pilots that make the Air Force sound good. That's the Dos Gringos. Dos Gringos. Count them both. Great awesome. guys. We had awesome them on the music. show. A lot of fun and a lot of great music. Thank you, gentlemen. So, till next week, what can we give them by way of advice? What do you think, Fig? Stay safe. Check six. Well, there I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the shit I was wearing on that day. Now an F-16 is cramped enough, but it's even worse with all that stuff supposed to save your life. But we knew there was Going down the North Atlantic, man, it's over. He said it. It's over. Try it again without the sarcasm. <laughs> what? What was that clip from? Groundhog Day.